Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Turkey's president told earthquake-stricken residents, we are face-to-face with a great disaster, and called for patience as pain and anger mounted over loved ones lost while waiting for rescue workers. In northern Syria, the situation was already dire even before the quake struck. This is an emergency within an emergency. In Syria, people were already suffering as it is with a severely weakened infrastructure, depleted health system, shortages of necessities like water, electricity, you name it. We try to understand the staggering toll of this disaster next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The images coming from earthquake-stricken Turkey and Syria have been shocking. The stories, heartbreaking, as the death toll goes well past 11,000. More than 9,000 of those known deaths in southern Turkey. In Syria, more than 2,600 people have died, according to the state health ministry and the White Helmets Relief Group. Joining me now is Charles Lister, a senior fellow and director of the Syria and Counterterrorism and Extremism Programs at the Middle East Institute. Charles Lister, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. First, can you just tell us what you've been hearing about the situation on the ground in Syria? Well, in Syria, it's it's kind of hard to come up with any more negative adjectives. It is as bad as you could possibly imagine. Um, these people have experienced 12 years of some of the most brutal conflict we've seen in decades. Um, 65% of the basic infrastructure in that northwestern region of Syria was already either destroyed or, or heavily damaged after those 12 years of war. So to have such an enormous earthquake strike and to have it strike in the middle of the night while everyone was in bed was you know, quite literally the, the, the absolute worst case scenario. The biggest problem that they currently face right now is that the only sort of rescue uh, workers available are the white helmets, which were just mentioned. Um, that's a force of about two to 3,000 volunteer civilians. Um, none of them are paid. Um, but that's two to 3,000 people working amongst a population of nearly 5 million. Wow. So they are beyond stretched. Um, they were set up with international funding to respond to individual airstrikes, not a catastrophic, apocalyptic earthquake that flattens most of everything that surrounds them. So they are really struggling, and not a single ounce of aid has managed to reach northwestern Syria three days after the earthquake. Everything flattened around them at a time, as you say, 
Syria has already endured 12 years of war. We're hearing, of course, about the economic collapse, the food shortages, and and the infrastructure issues there. But we were also hearing about a recent cholera outbreak. Yes, yes, exactly. So right after the COVID pandemic uh, sort of whittled away in Syria, then they were hit by by cholera. Um, That's largely a reflection of um, deteriorated and damaged water infrastructure. People were basically forced to drink water from from Euphrates, big Euphrates River and other basic natural water sources, all of which have been, um, you know, riddled with cholera and many other parasites. So cholera is something that they have that we have dealt with in Syria before. But yes, this latest sort of outbreak came at a particularly concerning time. And again, in the winter, um, when uh, when uh, access to other kinds of resources is even harder than it normally is. Yes, you're saying that aid is not getting through. Explain why aid is not getting through. Well, so there's there's kind of two um, uh, sides to to this issue um, in areas of Syria controlled by the regime in the north of the country. Uh, aid is getting in. So the Syrian regime, uh, run by Bashar al-Assad, uh, has so far in the last three days received humanitarian assistance from the United Nations and at least 12 other foreign governments. Um, so that aid is being trucked mostly to areas in the north of the country that are controlled by the regime. Yes. It's this northwestern pocket of Syria controlled by the opposition that is essentially besieged now. Um, the problem is we have one... Uh, border crossing from southern Turkey into northwestern Syria that the United Nations is permitted to provide humanitarian assistance through. There used to be three, but the Russian government used its veto at the United Nations Security Council to close those border crossings, essentially an extension of what we've seen over the past 12 years, which is a siege and starve strategy targeting the opposition. That one border crossing that is technically still allowed to provide aid is cut off because the roads leading to it and from it were so heavily destroyed by the earthquake. The staff who normally run that border crossing have been killed, wounded, or are uh, Mm. assisting family members who have been. And much of the infrastructure that the United Nations relies upon to provide aid across that border crossing was also damaged or destroyed during the earthquake. So is this horrible situation where the only route through which help could come is shut off. Um, And so there's right now a very big push by the international community, particularly by the Europeans, to reopen those other two border crossings that we used to use and to start providing humanitarian assistance across those borders without the United Nations, without a Security Council mandate or permission, but just doing it because of the humanitarian imperative, because people need this assistance and we're going to give it to them no matter what. And there are initial steps in that direction, but we're still some way away from it. Yes. How is the Assad regime responding to that? I, I imagine they have no incentive to open up those alternative routes if it's to provide aid to rebel held territories. Yes. So the regime has made itself very, very clear. Um, Its ambassador at the United Nations in New York said uh, a couple days ago, um, you know, international community, please give us all the support you can and we will deliver it to all Syrians all around the country. But you are not allowed and you do not have our permission to provide assistance from outside that doesn't go through our capital, Damascus. Um, So they, of course, place that longstanding condition uh, on things and they know. Um, after 12 years, that this is a serious vulnerability to this last bastion of sort of opposition 
um, or a territory, that they are deeply vulnerable, they are cut off, and this is an opportunity for the regime to sort of sell an idea to the international community that the only way of helping these people is essentially to go through the regime and give the regime the power to determine who gets the aid and, and when. This is a pattern that's played out over the last 12 years. We know it very well. The United Nations has had to essentially submit itself to the regime's will for most of the past uh, decade. And as a result of that, what we have seen is a systematic manipulation and diversion um, of humanitarian aid by the regime. Um, and the little bits of aid that the regime has historically allowed into opposition areas, um, so somewhat conveniently, is stopped just before they get there. And then what we've seen is um, flour, um, you know, feces added to the flour shipments, um, shards of glass put in the wheat bags, um, and all the baby formula and medicines removed. So there's a significantly negative track record here. And so hopefully the international community is bearing all of that in mind when it comes to hearing these demands from, from the Syrian regime. Even with all that, Charles Lester, given the desperate nature of the situation, do you think they should still try to route that through Damascus? Aid well, through I Damascus, mean, the international community? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really good and important question. I mean, any avenue through which aid can go should be being utilized. So as cynical and skeptical as we rightly are, about that route from Damascus up to the opposition-controlled Northwest, it's still worth a try. If the regime is, in theory and on paper, offering to facilitate that, we should take them up on the offer. But um, the priority, the absolute priority here, is doing what's called cross-border and utilising those border crossings from Turkey. It's a more direct route. We know that aid will not be interfered with, and we know that it will come in very significant quantities and, you know, another sort of factual anecdote to throw in here is in 2022, over the past, you know, 12 months, um, we were doing this. The international community was doing what's called cross-line aid, which is from Damascus into opposition areas and cross-border from Turkey into opposition areas. Now, of all of the aid that the international community provided into northwestern Syria in 2022, 99.6% of it came cross-border from Turkey. And the cross-line assistance that the regime was willing to allow amounted to less than half a percent of all the aid that went there last year. So, yes, we should take the regime up on its offer, but we should also be very wide-eyed into the reality that it is not going to amount to very much. Hmm. We're talking with Charles Lister, Senior Fellow of the Middle East Institute in Washington. You, our listeners, can join the conversation. Do you have family or friends or ties to Syria or Turkey Share what you are hearing and what you are going through here. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or call us with your questions or concerns about what is going on there by calling 866-733-6786. I want to ask you about Turkey, Charles Lister, just for a moment. I understand while the situation wasn't as dire in Turkey, as it was in Syria, it was very strained in Turkey before the earthquake. Can you tell us about that? Well, Turkey's experiencing and has for a while now been experiencing an, an economic decline and economic struggles. Um, the south of the country, which is where this earthquake has hit most strongly, um, also has a very significant population of Syrian refugees. Um, and one thing we've seen, so technically speaking, in mid-May, uh, we are supposed to have um, presidential elections in Turkey. And one of the most 
sort of contentious, but also one of the most significant issues within that election has become the issue of Syrian refugees. Um, so the, the current government led by President Erdogan has long held a very supportive view towards the Syrian refugee population. I should say there's nearly 4 million Syrian refugees in, in southern Turkey. Um, but he, uh, President Erdogan's primary competitors inside Turkey ha have taken a very kind of aggressive uh, tone against the Syrian refugees. They have blamed Syrian refugees for all of the ills that Turkey is facing, mostly economically. But I should say those are not um, sort of factual or, or logical accusations, but they are an easy scapegoat. So a lot of this sort of instability that we've seen in this southern region of Turkey in the last few months has circulated around this issue. Um, are Syrian refugees going to be sort of coercively expelled into Syria against their will? Are they going to stop receiving the sort of limited benefits from the Turkish state that they have until now? Um, and so uh, I know this isn't exactly exactly the question you were asking, but that plays into this whole context of the earthquake. Um, there's been significant pressure in the last three days against the government, accusing it of not responding uh, sufficiently. Uh, I think some of those accusations may have something to go to go with them, but I think a lot of it is because of just the sheer disaster that has that has hit the region. But I think what is most likely here, and I worry about this, is that the Syrian refugee population in southern Turkey are going to be largely ignored by the Turkish state's response. Um, that response is going to prioritize Turkish citizens, um, and those refugees are going to continue to be the vulnerable population that they have been for the past 10 years. And the last thing I'd say on here on this is, last year in 2022, the rate of illegal migration um, of Syrians towards Europe rocketed by over 100%. Um, those numbers are going to be dwarfed by what we see this year. They were all, already going to be dwarfed before this earthquake. But I think this earthquake guarantees a very significant refugee flow towards Europe again. And the last time that happened in 2015, the consequences were transformational. Um, and that's what I think we may be seeing soon. We're hearing about the impact of the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey, and we'll have more after the break on Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the earthquakes that struck southeastern Turkey and northern Syria Monday, claiming now more than 11,000 lives, well past 11,000 lives in terms of a death toll. We're hearing about the humanitarian crisis unfolding. 
And we're going to hear now from people here with ties to the region. I'd like to bring into the conversation Perry Ottoman Holden, co-founder and volunteer with PIDA, an education charity that serves southeastern Turkey. Perry Holden, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. So I understand you serve families in southeast Turkey that are Turkish, Kurdish, and Syrian. You've been in constant contact with these families. What are they telling you? Um, well, the situation is, it's, uh, we were all in shock. They were in shock. The situation started out awful. And to be honest, it's been getting worse by the day as the numbers keep going up and the, uh, and hope is, uh, hope is diminishing because there's so many, um, buildings that are completely flattened. Um, the three regions, uh, so 10 regions were affected in, in Turkey. Of those 10 regions, we have a main presence in three of them, Diyarbakir, Adana, and Malatya. But we have students in five of the others, and they're constantly sending photographs and news and calling, you know, 2.30 a.m. last night, they're calling me in tears. Um, they can't find relatives. Uh, there's no help getting to them. They're all staying in various shelters <laughs> across the city. And uh, it, it's a devastating situation. And I, <clears throat> I feel the same for the, uh, for the Syrians across the border. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine and come to terms with the scope of the devastation in the area. Yes, we've been hearing a lot about the challenges with rescue operations, hearing stories of people waiting in vain for rescuers to dig out family members that they could hear under the rubble. I imagine you are not hearing whether or not that is improving, that it has been more um, effective. No, there's been um, also the difficulty is the temperatures uh, yes. uh, are so cold that uh, people surviving in, in their snow, uh, very cold temperatures for them to survive more than two days under heavy rubble is, uh, you know, there's not, they're still waiting outside, but I think hope is very little that they will be able to get people alive out. And there's, there's lots of international aid coming, but logistically it's been a disaster getting it to the places needed. How are people staying warm and what are they saying they need most? Funny enough, when we ask them, what do you need most? There's, you know, the lots of uh, doctors uh, and medical staff uh, from all over Turkey have gone there as volunteers. So they're sending lists of, uh, you know, uh, they, they need uh, gasoline and uh, they need fuel because they're not able to use their cars. They, they have no transport. Uh, they're asking for medical supplies. A lot of hospitals and new built hospitals have collapsed. So that adds to the tragedy. Um, our students and their families, they're just praying. Um, we're saying, what do you need? But getting things directly to them quickly is uh, is quite hard. Um, yes, please continue. And uh, there's lots of local groups, of volunteers, charities. Uh, people have jumped in their cars with uh, and sending trucks, etc. But a lot of them got caught up in Konya due to the bad weather. So everything's been delayed, and time is uh, is of the essence. So I, I'm. I'm afraid the most critical period is uh, uh, has been lost to save people. 
We have comments coming in, and I want to remind listeners that we're talking with Perry Holden, co-founder and volunteer with PIDA, an education charity serving southeastern Turkey. Charles Lister is also with a senior fellow for the Middle East Institute in Washington, director of the Syria program and its counterterrorism program. You can join the conversation with your questions about the situation, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. If you are hearing from family or friends in Syria or Turkey and want to let our listeners know what they are going through, feel free to share that as well. Ibru comments, for those who would like to make monetary contributions, donations to the Turkish American organizations, Turkish philanthropy funds, and empowering the Turkish American community USA go directly to nonprofit disaster relief organizations in Turkey, providing help in the disaster area. I imagine you are also being asked, Perry, what is the best way to help? What do you suggest? Um, there's, a, there's a couple of organizations that uh, I, I've given the uh, links to you um, that are doing good work and are getting, uh, uh, getting the help to the people who need them. Uh, uh, one is Ahbab. One is Okut. Uh, uh, if you're making donations from the U.S. Uh, Turkish uh, Philanthropy Funds, uh, has a good uh, website, and uh, uh, they're they're collecting donations. Uh, mm-hmm. I think all of those are good. Um, the government has uh, uh, two big entities, but uh, uh, right now most people are trying to go with uh, sort of on the ground grassroots uh, organizations. Mm-hmm. Because there is skepticism about these government-sponsored organizations? There is uh, disillusionment, uh, frustration, and skepticism. uh, Because we've, in in Turkey, since 1999 was the last big earthquake we had, uh, and that was in the Gölcük area. And since then, Turkey has had an earthquake tax, which we have all been paying for the past since 1999 for uh, almost 24 years. So people are questioning where these funds have gone, where is the more organized uh, um, emergency services and rescue operations, which uh, they're not seeing. You're reminding me that KQED has compiled a list of groups raising funds to provide direct aid to Turkey and Syria, and that can be found on our website, kqed.org, and Twitter as well. Charles Lister, when you're hearing the skepticism with the government, I've also been hearing part of it is also fueled by the fact that there's real questions about the infrastructure there, infrastructure standards, the way that the government has handled the fact that it is so vulnerable to earthquakes. Yeah, sure. I mean, just like we've seen, and just like we've seen in southern Turkey, uh, you know, inherent deep-rooted shortcomings in terms of construction standards, um, you know, does play a very significant role in creating vulnerability. Um, So, yes, I think that that is, uh, you know, an element worth considering. But, you know, frankly, after 12 years of of the kind of war that we've seen in Syria, um, I think what's what's much more significant in terms of creating that sort of structural vulnerability um, is the war itself. Uh, And and, and as I said, you know, the, the key kind of hardest hit area of Syria in the Northwest um, has borne the biggest brunt of the past 12 years of conflict. And as I say, 65% of the basic infrastructure was already destroyed or very heavily damaged. So it was a sort of sitting sitting target for, for a natural disaster like this. Perry, what are you most concerned about in terms of 
what comes next for the families that you are supporting? Um, I think the families are, I think for all of us, the sheer scale of the death toll that I see happening, um, there's predictions just based roughly on the number of buildings that have gone down. Right now, the government says it's around 10,000, our president said today when he visited. But the predictions are that it could be from 50 to 100,000 people. Uh, the, the region had 13 million people living. Hatay had 1 million people living, and uh, more than half are unaccounted for. And right now, uh, you know, uh, there's they're basically pulling out the dead, burying them. There's no... Uh, there's no time to identify people, so people don't know who's been taken out, who's been buried. Um, it, it's a very sad situation, so I think all of this will sink in. And then, of course, comes the rebuilding of this huge area. And as Charles also said, we had elections that were announced for the 14th of May. Uh, I'm pretty sure that those will be delayed uh, uh, considerably because this area will not be in a situation to uh, to host elections. Um from our perspective, in terms of our students, our focus is on education of girls. And uh, I also fear that education in the region will be uh, will be greatly hampered uh, because a lot of schools have been damaged, uh, students uh, killed, teachers killed. And for all of them, whether fi- first physically and also mentally to get back into education and to continue uh, after what they've lived is not going to be easy. You mentioned earlier, Perry, the terrible earthquake in 1999, and I understand you were in Turkey during that time. The death toll there, about 17,000 lives. I'm the, wondering the how you compare... The official death toll. That's the official, yes, it's so, <laughs> right. It, in, in Turkey, we have a difference between the official numbers and the... Uh, uh, what we believe are the true numbers. The official toll was 17,000, uh, but uh, I think the uh, the real toll was closer to 30,000. So we'll see what the official one comes out on this one, but I'm afraid it's going to be uh, awful. And, and that is what I wanted to ask you, just based on the ca- kind of differences there were between that terrible earthquake and, and this one that come to mind for you, uh, but also, I'm just curious about what that recovery process looked like, because what you're describing has just happened is on the order of magnitude much greater. Um, with that earthquake, there was a big uh, uh, building of uh, earthquake-proof buildings in the izmit Gölcük area and rehousing of people, which I'm sure will happen here too. Uh, and after the, uh, in 1999, there was a very strict uh, earthquake resistant building code put in place. So Turkey does have this uh, uh, building code and it is very strict. I know it in depth having done a construction recently, but the problem is that we have these uh, uh, construction codes and all these requirements and regulations, but the government comes along every year or so. They were about to do another one and does a amnesty so that they they look at all the buildings that were not done to code and they say, fine, there's a overall amnesty just before the elections or whatnot, and they're all fine. So you can live in them. And people buy these apartments in these buildings. A lot of the buildings that went down were new buildings. They should have been built according to this code, but they weren't. Well, we've got a call from Carol in Foster City. Hi, Carol, you're on. Hi. Um, I was... 
I was there in exactly that area about 11 years ago. I, I, I just think it needs to be pointed out that a large number of the people there are Kurds. They aren't Turks, uh, both from Diyarbakir on east and in northern Syria. And I really sincerely worry about the degree of help they'll get. Hmm. While I was there, I accidentally observed a massacre of Kurds by the Turkish military. And believe me, it's not an easy life to start out with. The degree of poverty in that area is beyond the belief of anybody in California. And I've lived in California all my 85 years. It's 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 just a bad scene. Mm. And my heart goes out to them. And if I knew how to contribute and I knew that the Kurdish people would get the money, that I would be assured it went that way. I'd, I'd really appreciate hearing about it. And I okay. thank you. Well, Carol, thanks. Well, first, Perry, let me go back to you, because the families you serve, some are, in fact, Kurdish. Um, to be honest, uh, that area, Diyarbakir, uh, Mardin, that area is all Kurdish. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. They are Kurdish, but they are Turkish. Uh, and I know the government has this uh, agenda with the PKK that, you know, Kurds does not equal PKK and terrorism. And uh, most of my students are Kurdish. They speak Kurdish, they speak Turkish, and uh, they are getting the equal help and support from our side. And also at the moment, all the students that are in shelter or that are getting uh, help are getting the same help as the Turkish uh, students. Charles, sir, do you have any thoughts on Carol's concerns? I think from the outside, I think it's very right and understandable to be concerned, given the uh, the divisions that we know exist, as, as Perry just made very clear. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, but at the, at, in an emergency situations like this, I also would sort of warn against creating these lines of division. Um, this is an emergency situation where civilians, no matter who they are, will be receiving any and all of the aid that they can receive. Um, Another point to make would be that there's a, a Kurdish angle to this as well in Syria, albeit the Kurdish regions of northern Syria were significantly less badly hit um, than the northwest. Um, but they are receiving some assistance via the, the KRG in northern Iraq. Um, uh, but but yeah, my, my general message is, and I think as, as Perry was, I think, suggesting as well, in an emergency situation like this, everyone is a victim. Um, and it would be quite surprising if we genuinely did see a differentiation in how different populations were treated. Uh, I would add the Syrian refugee population is likely a much more likely exception to that rule um, than the domestic Kurdish population in, in Turkey. Again, Charles Lister is senior fellow with the Middle East Institute, director of the Syria and counterterrorism programs. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, 866-733-6786, the number to call, email address, forum at kqed.org, post at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Paul tweets, NGOs always face challenges responding to disasters in areas under sanctions, not just in disasters, but ongoing conflict situations. The UN and US are starting to make changes, but more fundamental humanitarian allowances are needed. Charles, can you talk a little bit about what the U.S. needs to do to help these war-torn areas 
these conflict zones, as Paul is bringing up, like Syria. But what can it do to help Syria in this situation? I imagine aid will need to be increased, but there's a real question as to whether that would happen. And given the history of how hard it's been to get even the aid that's been agreed to. Sure. So, I mean, this I'm glad this came up because it has become uh, quite a significant subject of of, uh, of discussion over the last several days. And I'm glad it's come up because I think things need to be sort of clarified in the Syrian case. So it is right to say that the Syrian regime has come under very significant sanctions pressure from the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union and Canada. Those are the main four sanctioning bodies. Um, but it is also important to note that those sanctions are punitive. They are specifically directed at specific individuals and entities involved in war crimes over the last 12 years. And all of those sanctions and all of those sanctioning bodies have a specific legislation in place that what is called waives um, all humanitarian assistance um, to be unaffected by sanctions activities. Um, an even more important angle to this issue is that um, but the vast majority of the humanitarian assistance that goes into Syria goes into Damascus. It is channeled through the Syrian regime. And of all of that assistance, 91% of it is funded by the four sanctioning entities, the United States, Canada, the European Union, and the United Kingdom. So the idea that somehow sanctions against the regime is impeding humanitarian assistance, it, it's honestly a myth. Um, and it has fast become a regime talking point in situations like this, where the desperation faced by people, it provides a very good opportunity to sell this argument. Um, but and off, on a factual level, there is nothing um, to substantiate the, the, the claims. So that 90% of the humanitarian assistance will continue to be funded by our governments, and it will continue to go through the regime um, and uh, channeled by, by the United Nations. Nothing is going to stop that. And it has been the case for the past 12 years, and it will continue to be. Listeners, we're talking about the impact of the earthquakes in Syria and in Turkey. There have been multiple ones, even after the 7.8 magnitude quake that struck. And you, our listeners, are invited to ask your questions about how the Syrian and Turkish governments will handle the situation, the political situation in either country, as we have Charles Lister with us of the Middle East Institute and Perry Altman of PIDA. Also, you can share if you have family or friends or ties to Syria or Turkey. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than 11,000 people are dead and countless more injured or displaced after earthquakes devastated southern Turkey and northern Syria. Rescue workers in Turkey struggled to free people from the rubble as cold weather swept the region. And the quakes have compounded a years-long humanitarian crisis in Syria, racked by war. We're taking a closer look at the scale of this crisis and ways you can help. Charles Lister is Senior Fellow and Director of the Syria and Counterterrorism and Extremism Programs at the Middle East Institute. Perry Ottoman Holden is co-founder and volunteer with PIDA, an education charity serving southeastern Turkey. And joining me now is Nalan Gungor Usashik, President of the Turkish American Association of California. Nalan, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for paying attention to this human tragedy. You have friends and people in your association as well who have been sharing stories with you about family members. Can you please let us know what they are hearing and what they are telling you? Um, 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 the situation in um, in the, this area is, is um, very horrifying, and um, we are just watching as the death toll is increasing. Locally in the Bay Area, we have a number of either my personal friends or community members whose first degree parents, uh, cousins, grandchildren, grandkids, so on, uh, who have been severely affected. Um, So we are all crumbling to find a way to assist them directly and also uh, try to provide some comfort shoulder to those friends who are unable to just fly there and and help the family members. And so it's it's a it's a it's a very chaotic situation. The emotions are running high, and uh, at the same time, keeping cool and see what we can do, how we can help them. It's it's not easy. So we are yeah. talking, crying together, and collecting um, money, collecting some items such as um, sleeping bags. Blankets, diapers, baby formulas. The the area uh, is known with very harsh winter, and uh, as you can imagine, the roads are collapsed. Uh, it's very cold. So we we are doing what we can to help them. So people are saying they need sleeping bags, baby right formula, now, diapers. Yeah. Uh, as of right now, I used to be a journalist in Turkey, so my journalist friends are all in those regions. So every contact I am having is one-to-one uh, with a person who is right there. So what I am hearing and then receiving from them is that the weather is very cold, the winter is harsh, so people need yes. tents and sleeping bags, not just a simple thick fleece blanket. And the children, um, babies need diapers, baby formulas, and as much as we can send over-the-counter simple pain medications, cough cough medications, uh, those are the number one. And locally, uh, they are in need of food, basic water, bread, um, 
So this is what they actually need. So Turkish Airlines is uh, partnered with American uh, Turkish Embassy, I'm sorry, in Washington, D.C. So uh, we local organizations are collecting donations. We are sorting them out and properly packing them and take them to the Turkish Airlines cargo in like San Francisco, in LA, in Miami, in New York, wherever the Turkish Airlines is flying. And Turkish Airlines is taking those uh, items to Istanbul mm. and they will be giving to local government agency and hopefully agency will be able to take them to uh, Antep, Kahraman, Marash, uh, Malatya, wherever they are needed. Yeah. So you're taking these items to the airports, you're saying? Yes, we are. We are. So I see. Uh, if that's okay, I like to give you a couple of websites. Yes, go ahead. Uh, one is our own organization, local organization, Turkish American Association of Northern California. And our website is www.t, as in Tom, A Apple, A Apple, C Charlie, A Apple, dot org. Uh, anyone who can help us uh, will find the information. And other website that um, is collecting monetary donation heavily is www.t as in Tom, p as in Peter, f as in Frank, u as in umbrella, n as in Nancy, d as in david.org. I am so struck, uh, Nalan, hearing you talk about also being a shoulder for people here to cry on. When there is a natural disaster or other disasters in countries where we have family and friends that are outside the U.S. There is such a feeling of wanting to help and, and also at the same time, even as you are trying to do what you can, this feeling of helplessness. Is that something people have communicated to you? That is that is the hardest part. I've been up for three nights hmm. and I thought this conversation was going to be uh, on TV, so I had to go and take a quick shower. That is the <laughs> hardest part. That is yes. the hardest part. Is that it's just like here, what happened in Katrina? I remember what happened in Katrina so clearly. I remember what happened in Iran or what happened in Turkey in 1999. That is the hardest part. You want to help, and we all can do something, even if it's a dollar or packet of child baby diaper but not being able to just go there and and give those people or talk to them it's not same it, it we, we are watching the news all of us is horrified the number is increasing number is increasing yeah so tonight for instance uh we will get together at the turkish restaurant sultana in Menlo Park at 7 p.m. On the purpose is basically um, we will sit and talk what we are doing. Yeah, you need yeah. some emotional place yes. that just where emotions are spoken without money, without this and that. That is also as important as um providing assistance. So it hurts. It hurts, especially we have friends whose parents um, died. I know her. her. Her family, entire family died. 
Well, Nalan, I cannot thank you enough for making the time to be with us when you have not even been sleeping and to help our listeners understand the toll that this takes and the ripple effect it has on all of us. And mostly, of course, the people who are so directly affected that your organization is trying to help. Thank you for the work that you do. Nalan Gungor Osashik is president of the Turkish American Association of California, and we are talking about the devastation, trying to wrap our minds around the staggering toll of the earthquakes that have struck South, southern Turkey and northern Syria. You, our listeners, are also asking questions. Robert tweets, what about airdrops of aid into the earthquake area? Charles Lister, airdrops, would that be something that the regime would allow in Syria, northern Syria, northeastern, northwestern Syria? Uh, well, uh, in in theory, um, I would say if track records are anything to go by, then no, the regime would, would certainly be opposed. Would it stand up and actually confront um, airdrops? Very unlikely, given the, the consequences. Um, so its rhetorical position would probably differ from its practical one. Um, you know, the, the Turkish military op um, operates an airfield, an airstrip in northern Syria. Um, so it is in theory possible, if coordinated and facilitated with Turkey, to do exactly that, to begin airdropping supplies into the heart of northwestern Syria, into this Turkish uh, airstrip, and then disseminating them from there. Uh, it just requires international will. We have to want to do this to make it work. Uh, and at the moment, quite frankly, what we've heard from, from the international community is uh, we're flooding Turkey with all of the assistance it needs, and absolutely rightfully so, as we've just heard from, from Nalan and, and from Perry. Um, but the Syria angle is sort of an afterthought, um, and particularly the Syrian angle with re relation to the 5 million people living in the opposition corner of the country. Um, and and to, to an extent now, all we've really heard is, well, we our, our NGO partners in northwestern Syria will continue to respond to the crisis. Well, our NGO partners are uh, a million miles from being in a position to truly meaningfully and effectively respond to the crisis that's at hand right now. And so it's a, it's it's disappointing to say the least. But as I said earlier, there are efforts to try and create a better response. But three, four days late, um, mm -hmm. and as we've heard from all the other guests, you know, it's, it's the height of winter. Um, they've had heavy rain, snow and sleet every night since the earthquake. Um, and, and thousands and thousands of bodies remain under the rubble, um, probably more than that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's taking far too long. Yes, for the people, we had heard from Perry as well, just the death toll. She fears 50,000, 100,000, you know, it, it's so hard to know at this stage, but then just countless more who will be displaced. Can you just give us a sense of the ripple effect that this will have across the world? how many people will be displaced and will need to migrate? So well, on the Turkey side of the equation, that some of the numbers that are being put out right now are extraordinary. Um, some um, experts were saying last night that the, the eventual toll could be as high as 180,000. Um, and I think that speaks to the magnitude of the destruction and the fact that it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to, to, to sort of reveal the scale of these disasters. Uh, three days is, is sadly not anywhere near enough to figure out just how bad things ha have been. 
Um, but I don't think so. Clearly, we've seen a vast, vast number of, of Turkish citizens displaced. But I think if we're talking about more sort of international effects, the, the worry is, as I stated earlier, about Syrian refugees and the Syrian displacement crisis. Um, you know, inside northwestern Syria, there are about four and a half million people. Three million of them are already displaced. They were displaced before the earthquake. Most of them were already living in tent camps. Um, so the Turkish government has essentially shut the borders uh, to prevent any further refugee flows. But the sheer extent of destruction is going to be another driver of people who will take desperate measures, probably, to escape Syrian territory. And as I was saying earlier as well, the Syrian refugees who are in Turkey are, frank, are sadly unlikely to receive the same level of assistance as Turkish citizens. Yes. And they have already a track record of fleeing towards Europe over the past 12 months in very significant numbers compared to the several years that preceded it. And those numbers are likely to significantly rise. And the last time this happened, it precipitated Brexit and the European and, and the UK's exit from the European Union, the rise of far right politics all across Europe and potentially even here in the United States with the election of the Trump administration, that whole refugee uh, anti-refugee sentiment um, and the targeting of the others, uh, any other, um, did frankly, yes. you know, begin with that Syrian refugee crisis. So if it happens yes, again, the, I'm worried. The ripple effect of the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Charles Lister, I have to ask you, the prospects of recovery are hard to wrap our minds around in Turkey, as Perry has shared with us. I, I'm wondering if it's even, and I hate to ask this, but what that could even look like in, in Syria. Is there a future where recovery is not possible and the, especially the northwestern region that is held by, that is rebel territory, essentially becoming uninhabitable for a long period of well, time. Yeah, well, we are, we've been heading in that direction for many years, and this has accelerated that path, for sure. Um, the, the wider Syrian crisis is a very long way from being resolved. There's no real light at the end of the tunnel in terms of there being ever being a sort of true resolution. And it is going to take a genuine negotiated settlement or some kind of a resolution to the wider Syrian crisis for any form of serious reconstruction of the whole country um, to become a realistic expectation. And there's just no sign of it. And to be frank with you, the, the United States government, both the tail end of the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration has shown no interest whatsoever in trying to truly resolve the Syrian crisis. They've largely disengaged um, and if there is ever going to be something, some movement in that direction, it is frankly going to take a U.S. push alongside allies and partners to say enough is enough. It's been nearly 13 years now. The Syrian crisis must be resolved and the regime has to start to constructively engage in negotiations. But if that doesn't happen, then yes, every corner of Syria is going to remain in the levels of destruction that they currently are. And sadly, this northwestern corner is going to be the absolute hardest hit. Listener John tweets that Karam or Karam Foundation is an amazing U.S.-based NGO already serving kids and families 
in affected areas of Syria and Turkey. Please support their relief efforts. Perry, I understand that you go back to Turkey or have been on a monthly basis. What are you thinking about when you will be able to return? Um, uh, people from Paida are going there uh, next week to Malatya because we had a lot of students who've lost their homes there. Um, I will go probably in the next uh, month to month and a half, I'm hoping. Uh, in the meantime, we've been collecting funds and uh, we'll be helping the families that uh, that we support. Uh, the government has brought certain restrictions uh, in terms of who can collect money uh, due to the earthquake within Turkey in terms of charities. So we're able to collect money and funds for our own students, uh, but not for anything beyond that uh, because they want everything centralized. Uh, the other difficulty is, as you've probably uh, heard, uh, Twitter has been uh, pretty much restricted banned as of this afternoon in Turkey, uh, which has caused a huge outcry because Twitter was a very, um, uh, it was very key in the uh, sharing of information in terms of help and situation. Uh, but the government saw it as a way to uh, criticize it and bring its uh, shortcomings uh, to the media. Uh, so that's that's you were asking what was the difference between the 1999 earthquake and this one that was a huge difference we didn't have social media then and the sharing of information and immediate uh, uh, news which we did have uh, we do have now but again to, uh, you know the restriction on twitter has not been good today yes i have heard about that and did want to ask you about the fact that that was happening and, and why, and you just gave us the reason that it will invite criticism of the government, but at a time when we really do need the information that is coming from them to better understand the situation and what can be done to help. And so thank you so much for being those information sources for us today. Perry Holden, co-founder and volunteer with PIDA, really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. Charles Lister, Senior Fellow and Director of the Syria and Counterterrorism and Extremism Programs at the Middle East Institute. Thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And my thanks to Nalan Gungor, Usachik, President of the Turkish American Association of California, for joining us, and also listeners for sharing your questions and reflections. Caroline Smith and Susie Britton produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.